Good morning. It's good to be able to be with you today. I know I probably say that every time I stand up here, but I do mean it. It's a, it's a real privilege and joy to be with you, and thank you so much for the, the warm invitation for Claire and the kids, and it's, it's just good to be here, and also good to have a chance to unpack a bit of Matthew's gospel with you this morning and get down to just what it is he's trying to say about Jesus and what Jesus himself is trying to say is for those of you with red letter Bibles it's all in red today so it's all all the things that Jesus is speaking and teaching um, that we're going to look at to a little bit together so if you have a Bible and you want to turn to Matthew chapter 25 I'm guessing it might be up on the screen. It often is. Um, Matthew chapter 25, we're going to be in verse 14. So Jesus says this, Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. <coughs> Excuse me. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, You should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. (coughs) So, a story that you might have heard before at some point, sometimes known as the parable of the talents. I didn't see what translation was up on the wall behind me, but sometimes it's a story talked about these talents. It's actually where we get the word talent from. Uh, it's taken from this story and, and from the, the word that Jesus uses here about these gifts, these talents, these bags of gold that get distributed to these servants. A few things that we need to just kind of... Uh, define a little bit more clearly before we kind of dive into this passage a little bit more. Firstly, there's this whole masters and servants thing. And the problem with that is, is when we hear that, we, you know, we probably think about a nice employee full of benefits and, um, you know, they're getting a good wage. Maybe they've got a nice, lovely little annex in the house. But these sort of servants didn't exist in the first century. 
Although we use the word servant because we're more comfortable with it, in all reality, Jesus is talking about a master and his slaves. Uh, Now, that slavery doesn't imitate the slavery that perhaps we think of when we think about the the African slave triangle and, and all the atrocities and things that happened there. There were still atrocities in the Roman world with slaves. Please don't misinterpret me, but they were different. They, they weren't quite the same. They weren't seen as, as human property in the same way as the African slave movement was. They still were given the right to do horrible and horrific things to them, but it was different. Um, but either way, Jesus is, is speaking into a first century world in which that was commonplace, in which that was a norm that people had slaves. And so although we've used, whoever's translated the Bible has used the word servants because, I guess, because it feels more comfortable, we need to understand that that's not quite the setting that's going on here. We're talking about masters and their slaves. And that's quite important because... To a Jewish person sat here listening to Jesus tell this story, as soon as those two words, master and slave, are spoken, they know that it's code, that this rabbi, that this teacher is about to tell them something about God and his interaction with the nation of Israel. Throughout, not just Jesus' teaching, but also common in other Jewish teachings of that time, master and slave was code for God's and the nation of Israel, God and the people of God. And so whatever it is that Jesus is saying here, whatever it is that he's trying to unpack, that he, what he's trying to teach, those that were sat in his circle listening to this story would have been tuned in that he's trying to say something about this nation that he's living in the middle of, something about the Jewish people. And we need to not just throw that away. We'll circle back to that in a minute. Then we have these bags of gold or these talents Um, which obviously aren't physical talents or gifts and abilities. In the story, it's literal money. Scholars suggest that a talent, that a a bag of gold (coughs) that Jesus is referring to here, is roughly 15 to 20 years wages for manual labor, for, for a kind of minimum wage, how much money they'd earn over that period. So we're not talking about, you know, here's a tenor, go and see what you can do with it. We're talking about quite a significant sum of money. And then if you think about this this guy at the start who gets five talents or five bags of gold, we're talking 75 to 100 years of wages. Significant amount of money, significant amount of cash. He entrusts his whole wealth to these slaves. We could have a question about how wise that was, but either way, he entrusts his money, his his wealth, his his livelihood to these slaves and to see what they do with it. And that word entrust is important. It wasn't a gift. It wasn't a here, go and spend this however you want. Remember, they're still slaves. He gave it to them with a purpose, with something that he wanted them to accomplish it, which we can tell by the end of the story, which was obviously to make more money, to increase his wealth. I also just briefly, before we dive into this more in depth, just want you to notice the master's reaction to the faithful servants. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. I want you to notice that because that's so different to how success looks like in our world. See, if we'd entrusted a bunch of money and and somebody had done really well with it and they'd profited and they'd exceeded our expectations, we would probably reward them with a higher pay packet, perhaps, maybe a bonus 
if we're um, in an investment part of the world, maybe they would get rewarded with actually early retirement. You can now do less. You can now work less. But isn't it interesting that, that in this story, the master's reward is responsibility? The byproduct of faithfulness is actually leadership. I think that's, I could probably do a whole sermon just on that, and we won't do that this morning. But I want to just throw that little nugget in there, because we live in a world that thinks leadership is a virtue that we're meant to attain to, and train for, and lead for, and and that's not just a worldly thing. How many churches across the Bay probably have leadership training programs? How much resources as churches do we pour into training people to be leaders? I would argue that leadership is not biblically seen all that much as a virtue. It's seen more as a vice. It's seen as a a weight, a burden, a responsibility that we carry as a byproduct of faithfulness. That I think if Jesus was sitting down doing consultations with our churches, he wouldn't be encouraging us to train leaders. He'd be encouraging us to train servants. He'd be encouraging us to run discipleship programs to help people learn how to be better servants, to to, to serve the world around them. And out of that faithful serving... Leaders will emerge because leadership is a byproduct of faithfulness in terms of how God's kingdom sees the world to work. And we tend to do it backwards. We tend to push people to become leaders and then try and help them be the right sort of leaders rather than seeing leadership as something that that just naturally grows out of faithfulness. That's a little bit of a side and a little bit of a soapbox, but... But we have this incredible story here about these servants, these slaves, these bags of gold. I also want to draw your attention to the very end of it. This, this one guy who takes his bag of gold, and we'll get into what Jesus means by this in a minute, and he buries it in the ground. And the master's response is for him to be cast out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, you might have heard of that phrase before, whether it's in relation to Dante's depictions of hell or, or in other sort of prescriptions about that, <clears throat> in all reality, Jesus is here referring to an area just outside the, the city of Jerusalem that was the, the local dump, the local tip, where, where the rubbish was literally thrown over the walls and it would fall down into the valley and it would get burned. It was the place that if you had leprosy, you would, you would have to go and live because you wouldn't be allowed to live within the city. And it was also the place that if if for whatever reason, maybe you didn't follow the right cleanliness codes or maybe you'd done something wrong, if you were to get cast out of the community, if you were to say, you're no longer a Jew, you can't live here anymore, they would go and live in this camp. So this statement about weeping and gnashing of teeth to those that were sat there listening to Jesus wouldn't have conjured up thoughts of eternal hellfire and brimstone. It would have conjured up thoughts of being an outcast of being told you're no longer a part of this community. You are disconnected. You are removed from it. And that's quite important as we try to understand what it is that Jesus is saying here. One of the problems we have in studying the Bible this way, when we stand up and either in a Bible study or on a Sunday morning and we, we take a section of Bible, not that we really have any choice because we obviously don't have time to read the entire Gospel of Matthew this morning and, and read it. But one of the problems that we get is these passages, these stories get really disconnected from their context. And that can make it really hard to understand them. Um, Matthew is writing about Jesus with a very clear agenda. 
Um, they didn't write history in the first century like rewrite history. It, his story isn't necessarily chronological. It is historical. Everything within it are facts that he has eyewitness accounts for. But he's grouping things and putting them together to make a statement, to make a claim about Jesus. That was a very common form of historical writing in the first century. And one of the things you'll find if you were to take an overview of Matthew is that he's taken all the teachings of Jesus and he's grouped it into five sections. Because Matthew wants to state through this retelling of Jesus' story that Jesus is greater than Moses, that he's greater than the temple, that he's greater than the law, and that he is the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies about a Messiah that was going to come and rescue God's people. And so Matthew groups Jesus' teachings in five to mirror the five books that Moses wrote in the Old Testament. And here in this story in Matthew 25, we're coming to the end of his last block of teaching, his last little bit of discourse. And through these couple of chapters, Jesus has been dropping in um, little Uh, references and allusions to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel was very widely read at this time in history by the Jews. It was kind of the on-trend prophet, the on-trend book of the scriptures. And so it was kind of the thing that, that lots of teachers and lots of rabbis, as far as we can see, were going to. But Jesus begins in this, in this block, in this passage to say, the prophecies that Daniel's making about a Messiah, about somebody who's going to come and rescue the world, that he's fulfilling them. And through the, these, through the woes to the Pharisees, through the parables to the virgins, or the, the talents or the goats, Jesus is making a statement that he is the Messiah, who according to Daniel will be vindicated through his death and resurrection, through the destruction of the temple, which we know happened in AD 70. But here, Jesus is already beginning to allude to it, beginning to say that in proof that he is who he says he is, this temple's going to be destroyed. It's going to go away, which wasn't Jesus' doing. It was the Romans who'd surrounded Jerusalem um, and completely uh, put it to siege until a bit gruesome for a Sunday morning. But people ran out of food and they started to eat their children and then they didn't want to have their children. He started throwing them over the walls. And at that point, the Romans went, well, there's probably not much left in there. And they went in and destroyed everything. Um, placed their standards in the temple, uh, which was a reference to Daniel and the abomination that sits in the temple and, and all sorts of things there. Jesus is saying that he is the Messiah. He is the Son of Man. He is the one who will be vindicated. And this is really, really important because if we read this passage and we take it out of its context or we do what we sometimes do as Christians and we open the Bible and we go, well, what does this mean for me today? Instead of asking, what did the people who wrote this mean? And what does that mean for me today? Do you see the difference? But understanding, if we take it out of its context, you can Google it today. I was Googling it earlier this week, and it's not all that uncommon to find numerous blogs and articles about here are Jesus' top five tips to increasing your wealth, to making your life more prosper- prosperous. Here's, here's Jesus' ideas of how to make your business expand and prosper, all from this story. All from this story of this man with the parable of talents and bags of gold. And they're saying things like you need to take risks and you need to, to you know, not be too, too scrupulous with your money. Don't try to hold on to it too much. And there's all these kind of ticks and te- tips and techniques around it. But that's not what Jesus is on about here at all. Or we can read this passage and think that Jesus is making a statement to us about 
our gifts and our abilities and our talents and what we're doing with it. But again, that's not actually what he's talking about. That's where we get the word talent from, but that's not at the heart of his message. At the heart of Jesus' message here, he's, he's calling these people to account. Because you see, Jesus doesn't see himself as the bridegroom who will one day return. He sees himself as the bridegroom who has now here. You see, the nation of Israel, they lived with this idea that God had abandoned them. Uh, Ever since the prophet Malachi and they stopped having prophets and they stopped hearing the voice of God, they felt like God had abandoned them. They feel like these slaves, being abandoned by God, being left alone. And Jesus isn't saying, one day God's going to return and call your actions to account. He's actually saying, God has returned. I am here. What have you done with what I've given you? What have you done with these blessings I've put in your life? Not just little blessings, not just what have you done with your metalworking skills or your craftsmanship or your hospitality. What have you done with these extravagant resources I've placed in your life? We'll talk about what those are in a second. What have you done with them? Because I'm here to call you to account. And chapter 23, 24, and 25 are all about Jesus calling the people of Israel to account. Saying, I'm here. God has returned. The master has come back. The bridegroom has arrived. Are you ready? What have you done? I'm passing judgment now. Which perhaps seems a little bit harsh because we don't think about Jesus as a judging sort of guy. But he has the right to. It was his wealth entrusted to the people of God. It was his glory. It was his influence that was entrusted to them. And so what is it that Jesus is referring to? Well, if we, again, if we look at the bigger picture of this section, there are two main things that Jesus is challenging about the nation of Israel. One is the temple, and the second is the law. And he sees these two things as these extravagant gifts, this gift of the temple, this gift of of a space where people can meet with God, this gift of a law, this gift of something that can direct and guide people towards the life that God wants them to live. Those are the bags of gold that the nation of Israel have been holding. And Jesus is, in fact, turning particularly to these Pharisees and scribes and saying, look, you've just buried it. The temple, the law, you've just kept it all for yourself. You've just buried it. You've just gone, how can I get the most from this? What can I gain from it? And you've just put it in the ground. You've not shared it out because that's the only way to grow wealth, isn't it? You have to sell it or buy it. You have to give it to something. If you just hold on to it, it doesn't just miraculously grow. As many of us probably know, you have to do something with it. You have to have some risk. And Jesus is accusing them of not taking any risks with the temple of the law, not sharing it out, not passing it on, not giving it out. And as a result, he's claiming that they're that third slave. They're the third servant who will now be outcast, who will now be disconnected from the people of God. And we know that Jesus then, in other teachings and other places, talks about those that do his will and those that, that, that follow his way and those that believe in him, they are now the true people of God. And Paul picks up on this in Romans and talks there about how uh, the mantle that sat on the Jewish people is now passed on to Christians, to the church, to carry on being the people of God. And Jesus is here saying, look, you're going to be disconnected because you haven't done what you were meant to do. And that's why Jesus had to come so he could do what they were meant to do, but weren't able to. 
But what does this mean for us? Because that's quite important too. It's one thing us sat here this morning going, this is what Jesus meant. He was really having a go at these Jewish people and the nation of Israel. And he was, you know, really indicting them for all these things that they got wrong. And that's, you know, that's great. But that doesn't really help us live out our life, you know, the Monday to Saturday that we've got coming up in front of us, does it? So what, what can we glean? What can we, what can we gain from what Jesus is doing here? And I think we have to start by asking the question, so what have we been given? If Jesus has stood before them as the current people of God, the current Jewish nation, and saying, I'm holding you to account for what you've done with these extravagant blessings of the temple and the law, one day when we're held to account, and we will be, what will our extravagant blessings be? We don't have a temple. We don't have to worry about that. We don't have the law. Jesus fulfilled that. But what will our blessings be? What will our bags of gold be? What will be the thing that Jesus says, what have you done with this? I'm going to suggest three to you this morning. In Mark chapter 2, there's the famous story of the paralyzed man who gets lowered down through the roof on the mat by his mates, um, right in front of Jesus as he's teaching. And, and as Jesus looks at this paralyzed man, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. What's really beautiful about that statement is the word that Jesus uses there that we translate forgiven, it literally means they have let go of you. Jesus literally looks at this man and he says, son, your sins have let you go. It's really powerful, I think, isn't it? We're used to imagery about sins being washed clean and wiped away, and that's biblical and that's right. But here Jesus is talking about an imagery in terms of freedom. That somehow this man's sins, his character flaws, the, the brokenness of life, I think all those things are accompanied in this word he's using here. They've got a hold on him. In effect, they're paralyzing him. Not literally. I don't, Jesus makes it clear that his paralyzation isn't as a result of his sins. But we know what that feels like, don't we? When our flaws have got us paralyzed. When we seem to be caught in cycle after cycle of mistakes and bad decisions and selfishness. And Jesus looks at this man and he says, son, they're letting you go. Freedom is our first bag of gold. That what Jesus accomplished through his death and resurrection was freedom. That we are no longer slaves. That's the gospel. That God has established a new kingdom through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That means we are no longer slaves Everything is being put right. We are no longer bound to those character flaws, to that sin, to that brokenness. We have a freedom to live differently. What have we done with it? Have we used that freedom to help others find that freedom? Or have we buried it in the ground and gone, I'm going to get from this whatever I can, but I'm a bit too worried about losing it, so I'm just going to keep it to myself. How are we using that freedom, that freedom we have in Christ? Is it to gain freedom for others or is it just about us? That gospel, that message, that good news of what it is that Jesus has accomplished, that good news that we celebrate as we eat the bread and as we drink the wine, that's our second bag of gold. Paul in Romans chapter 1 talks about how the gospel is good news that brings, that is the power of salvation to all people. In Romans chapter 10, it talks about how hearing the message of, of Christ is, is a catalyst, is what birth faith in people. 
So this good news, it's, it's something that we benefit from. You, many of you will be here this morning because you've heard the good news, because you've believed that what Jesus did on that cross was for you, and you've accepted that and acknowledged it, and now you're living in the blessings of it. But that good news is not a bag of gold to be buried in the desert. It's a bag of gold to be shared, to be given out, to be distributed. That good news is a message that isn't just for you that was given to you so that you could be a part of others hearing it too. I wonder how we would fare standing before Jesus with that question. How have we done? Not in a legalistic way, because that's actually what we end up with if we take this passage out of context. We end up in some place of legalism where we're going to be punished by not doing enough with our gifts and talents and abilities. That's not Jesus' intention. But if we were standing before him, Would we have confidence in how we've shared the gospel with our neighbors, with our family members, with our work colleagues, with strangers at the bus stop or in Tesco? If you're anything like me, probably not. I probably have more stories of regret in my mind than I do of success. But yet that's the challenge. This bag of gold has not been given to us to be buried, but shared. The third bag of gold that I would suggest that we have is the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus tells those disciples to to wait in Jerusalem for the gift that has been promised to come, for the, the Holy Spirit to clothe them with power. Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit's job is first and foremost to reveal Jesus to our hearts. So that belief that you have, that faith that you have, that understanding that even though I've done so much wrong, Jesus still loves me. That's the Holy Spirit who speaks that to us. And Paul uses words, he's a bit like a barrister. He's a bit like a solicitor arguing in front of your hearts for what Jesus has done. But the Holy Spirit is also there to reveal Jesus through us to others. And so Paul talks about words and pictures and hospitality and leadership and tongues and healing as all a part of how the Holy Spirit wants to reveal Jesus to the people around us. And I think a lot of us are guilty. A lot of us would, are not living in the, the, the true meaning of what the Holy Spirit is meant to. A lot of us, have, have, we accept the inner bits. We love the bit that he's convinced us of our, of our place, our sonship, our, our childhood with God's. But in terms of anything else, we've buried him in the desert. We love what he benefits us. We love the strength and confidence in the gifts that it gives to us. But in terms of making a risk, in terms of putting our reputation on the line, in terms of stepping out in faith and allowing the Holy Spirit to work through us to reveal Jesus to someone else, well, that's a bit scarier. Our freedom, the gospel, the Holy Spirit, these are our bags of gold. These are the things that in, that in leaving, in Jesus' ascending, by the way, which is what Daniel was talking about in Daniel 7 when he talks about the Son of Man coming on the clouds. You'll notice if you were to go back and look at Daniel 7 that the coming is not from heaven to earth. The coming is from earth to heaven. And Daniel was prophesying that the ascension back to heaven was a part of how the Messiah would be vindicated, a part of how it would be proved that he was who he said he was. So in Acts chapter 1, as Jesus goes back to heaven, as he ascends, he's fulfilling that 
prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 about the coming of the Son of Man. It's not an end time second coming thing, at least not in Daniel. It's a very much here in this time, in, in this place in the first century thing. But what, that's what Jesus has entrusted us with. Our freedom, the gospel, and the Holy Spirit. What are we doing with it? Two thoughts on why those things are important just to close. And the first one, I think, really importantly has to do with unity. There's a whole parable about it next to the sheep and goats that you get to listen to the lovely Ray talk about next week. But unity is a big passion of Jesus. You will know who are my disciples by their love for one another. John 17, this big prayer that Jesus prays before he gets crucified, a big portion of that is about that, that the glory that he's given on would be used by his people, that they'd be together, that they'd be one, that they'd be unified. Paul wrote the entire book of Romans to urge unity between Jewish and Gentile Christians. Unity is a huge part of what is on God's heart, is what's on Jesus's heart, and is a huge part about how we accomplish this task with our bags of gold. Are we going to do this together? Or are we going to bury our bag and try and live this out on our own? And that's a huge challenge in today's day and age. Not just because we live such independent lives, but also because in a post-Christendom society, there are lots of different flavors of Christianity. And we can easily feel like we don't need to interact with them. We don't need to know them. We don't need to be giving to them because we've got our own jobs to get on with. But actually that unity is an essential part of using our bags right. Why? Because the whole aim of Jesus is for this world to be made right. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes that he who had no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And Paul believes that the thing that makes God righteous is the fact that he keeps his promise to rescue the world. So that means that what Paul is saying is that we, you and I, because of what Jesus did, are the fulfillment of God keeping his promise to rescue the world. We weren't saved for us. I mean, that was a part of it. We get the blessing of that. But we were saved so that we could be a part of the rescue team. So that we could be a part of the squadron that goes in and continues rescuing, continues saving. That's the aim of it. It wasn't just for your peace of mind, for your salvation, for your heavenly seats. It wasn't just so you could put your towel on that armchair somewhere in heaven to reserve your space. You have faith so that you can be a part of God's continual rescue and putting right of this world. Are we doing that? Or are we burying our bag of gold in the sand? Are we hiding it in the desert? Because we're afraid of losing it, or we're afraid of the cost, or we're afraid of what it would mean, or whatever excuses we want to come up with. Are we using it? Or are we burying it? That's the challenge. But one way or another, we've been entrusted with these bags. We've been given these extravagant blessings of freedom and the gospel and the Holy Spirit with an invitation to risk them and use them and see the difference it can make in this world that's around us. Let me pray for us.
Father, we don't want to fall into the trap of, uh, of some legalistic thinking that our, our standing with you depends on what we do, because that's not true. Our standing with you depends on what Jesus has already done. We claim that, Lord, and, and we immediately speak that message into our hearts and ask your Holy Spirit to speak it too. That our standing with you does not depend on how well we're doing at any of this. It depends on what Christ has already done in his death and resurrection. And yet, God, we long to make the most of that. We long to be faithful servants. We long to be to be living out and using these extravagant blessings in the way that you intended. So would you help us? Would you not individually, but collectively give us courage and ideas and bravery to take those risks, <coughs> to share what we have, to reach out for unity, even if they're people that we don't entirely agree with, because we know that that's how your kingdom's going to be built through sacrifice, through unity, and through your good news. And that's our longing, God, that this world would be put right. That all that stuff that isn't right, that we so clearly see on that daily news, would be changed. That there would be real, tangible transformation across our nation and across our world and across this bay. So use us, Lord. We are your servants. Would you use us? to make the most of what you've given us. Amen.